This is Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy, a retro science fiction podcast centering on Asian multimedia from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm your host, Dave, and this is another special episode. We are still sort of within season three of the podcast, which will resume when and if I have the chance, hopefully this summer. That would be ideal. Uh, but for now, uh, we will continue on with a couple of guest episodes. Those are a little bit easier to uh, put together. And for this episode, my special guest is Nick. How are you doing, Nick? I am very well, Dave. Thank you for having me on to talk about something that is not berserk for once. Yes, yes. Uh, we we actually, this is a, a co-host from another podcast I do, Wandering Swords. Uh, we will put the link to that in the notes. It's tangentially appropriate, although there are no real science fiction elements in that. But uh, aesthetically, I think it, it has some tie-ins to some of what we talk about um, on this podcast. It's also a lot of fun, um, and Nick's a great guy to talk to. So, Nick... Uh, since you're uh, guesting on this podcast and, and probably no one's familiar with you on this one, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what what's your interest in this sort of science fiction? Um, well, thank you for that intro, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I uh, So I guess in terms of podcasts, um, you and I do the Berserk podcast, like you mentioned, Wandering Swords. Um, and before that, I co-hosted a podcast about Twin Peaks uh, with my friend Dylan called 119, the Twin Peaks podcast. And um, as far as as far as science fiction goes, um, I would say my connection to it starts more at literature than it does at film. Um, you know, I I definitely when I was younger used to tear through a lot of science fiction novels. Uh, I was very into the works of people like Neil Stevenson, uh, who's more like on the, the hard sci-fi mm -hmm. end of it. Also, you know, like your, your William Gibson's, um, you know, Neuromancer, pattern recognition, stuff like that. And then like, um, you know, like stuff like the Dune books and, um, uh, Ray Bradbury, stuff like that. So like my, my preference for the genre is, is really literature to be honest with you. Um, but I, I, you know, as far as like film goes, I would say like, uh, Blade Runner, um, that would probably be the earliest one that really had an impact on me. That was what I saw even before, like, um, like the matrix and something like that, which would sort of be like the, I, I, I would say like the seminal uh, science fiction film of, of my generation. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. And today we're going to talk about a subgenre of science fiction, Japanese cyberpunk that I have very little background in. I would say other than this film, uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, which is tangentially connected to this film in ways that we'll talk about. Uh, it's probably the only other one that I'm familiar with. So this was, uh, this is an, an interesting and educational experience in many ways watching this film. 
Yeah, I'm glad to have you on for this um, in particular. Uh, those that the titles you were referencing, I think, are near and dear to many of our hearts. Uh, and were this podcast to be a little broader in scope and not focus um, entirely on uh, Asian multimedia, uh, because I have covered a few novels in the past, I wouldn't be um, opposed to looking at something like um, Gibson's, uh, I, think, I believe he did, uh, I Drew... Um, a few other ones, uh, or, or even uh, Stevenson's Diamond Age, Snow Crash, any of those. They're all yeah. within my interests um, in particular, and they do tie into um, a lot of what this podcast covers. However, they are Western media, so they they get a little bit of a skip um, aside from tangential references or things I would use to say something is either informed by or has informed um those those particular things, particularly like something like seminal, like Blade Runner, um, that has an undeniable effect on very very many things, and and specifically um, a few titles that will be that are have been and will be further covered in season three of the podcast, such as Bubblegum Crisis, because that is a direct riff on both um, Blade Runner and uh, Streets of Fire. Yeah, and yeah, like I said, I don't know too much about sci-fi from an Asian perspective. So, uh, like I said, this is this is a good first step for me. I think I, like this was interesting enough to me that I think I am going to pursue more of that stuff, not just from uh, this particular director, but also from some of his contemporaries as well. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's a there's a large swath of generally what would be considered, I guess, cult classics. Um, aside from uh, Sukumoto Shinya's uh, giant film, his filmography, um, kicking off basically with Tetsuo, but going through like Snake of June um, and a few other, few of other his other later films. Uh, that again will will be part because they are related um, will be covered at one point in time and uh perhaps i will have you back on uh, when we cover a little, bit, a little bit more of those uh but let's let's kick off uh, this episode uh, so we are covering 964 pinocchio this is a 1991 film and it is directed by fukui shojin uh, this is his first feature-length film. Um, prior to this, he had done uh, uh, several short films, um, one of which is Caterpillar, and that is included on the extras of the particular um, Unearthed Films uh, DVD version I have of uh, 964 Pinocchio. A little bit tougher to find outside of the DVD print. Um, it's an actual out-of-print DVD, so uh, everyone... If you have not found this, good luck. There are places to find it. Uh, it is also on YouTube. However, as far as I'm aware, the YouTube is unsubtitled, so it would be purely in Japanese. And while this is not a dialogue-heavy film, there are f quite a few key plot points that you may need to understand um, to go along with the, <laughs> the, the torrent of visuals that you will be um, inundated with. Um, while watching this movie yeah yeah insofar as there is dialogue in this film you're gonna need it to make any sense whatsoever of what is happening here because let's just say that uh this film is 
what you might call light on plot or light on exposition. Yes. It it doesn't really give you too much uh, information. In fact, after I watched this movie, I went and I did a little research about it. And there was like, there were definitely plot points and elements of it that flew over my head. And uh, I had to be educated about in this film's promotional materials and other writings about it. So <laughs> it's not like... Uh, exposition was not like the highest priority here. It's not really that kind of film. It's more of a uh, experiential. Yes, it's, it's, it's more a, of a visceral. It's a, a, a visceral and a vibe um, film, heavy on very specific set of aesthetics. Uh, and uh, it is as, a vibe, yeah. yes, and as far as the promotional material is concerned, and any tangential mis- material, uh, this is a. I would say maybe criminally underlooked film. It's, it's tough to get hold of for one. Uh, and even when it, it, I guess after its heyday, maybe about 10 years after uh, this outside of Japan is relatively unknown and just continues to be that way because it's, it's, it's hard to get a hold of with a version that has um, English subtitles. Not to mention that it's not yeah. a, the material isn't user friendly or viewer friendly as much as one might <laughs> no, think. No, it's certainly not. <laughs> it's a little antagonistic. This was, toward uh, the so I watched this. Oh yeah, it's, certainly. This is um, I. So I watched this last night, very late at night, and I was glad I did because uh, it. This movie definitely seems to me like a lost midnight movie. You know, like I yeah. think if this had come out in the United States in like the late seventies, it would be one of those, like it would like akin to like an eraser head or a John Waters movie, or just Mm. one of those things that plays at midnight for months on end, because it really is just a completely unique freak out. And it's, I I was like watching it. I, I was just thinking like this definitely I think that if more Western audiences were exposed to this film, I think that its stature in the cult cinema canon would be much higher. And it's not just the visuals. Uh, There's a very specific tone that's unique to this director. Uh, It's a lower budget film and they may do with that however they could. But what they what really I think caught my attention uh, outside of the plot was the camera work. There's a there's a lot of very very in a, like innovative and inventive uh, because of necessity and budget um, camera work that they do. And uh, watching the interview with the director, he talks a little bit about their the troubles they had um, because they they weren't able to rent some of the equipment you know, one would normally have. There's no there's no well also 1991, so there's like the the steady cams not a thing, um, a dolly not quite a thing. They basically one of the cast members uh, or film crew rather uh, was a nurse as a at a her day job. And uh, borrowed a wheelchair from the hospital, and they used that for the cameraman to like get some of the steady shots and some of the zooms. Um, but it puts the cameraman at a very specific level, and they play around with that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of very, very uh, creepy low angle shots of 
characters where you where you're just sort of like looking up at them while they have this extremely exaggerated maniacal expression on their face and uh it really really just adds to the overall feeling of insanity that this film has for sure yes uh so the the general plot of this as much as there is one uh we're centered on the titular character of pinocchio 964 who is a experimental sex android from an basically an unnamed corporation and farmed out to the wealthy um he is however uh defective in a particular manner and is cast aside um shortly into the beginning of the film and the rest of it is his it's vaguely a journey of self-discovery for an amnesiac android uh (laughs) And also a, I think, a scathing look at society and corporations at large. Um, that's the general thrust of this. That's the the punk in cyberpunk. Uh, yes, and it, it's effective yeah, in that so. in that vein. It works really well. Um, however, I think to get there, the journey is a harrowing one. Oh yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it definitely touches on the sort of sexual autonomy part of that uh, of the cyberpunk equation, as well as like you know, just like the overarching uh, corporate malfeasance. Uh, um, but yeah, it is. Uh, I would say so. There's, it's it's hard to know even where to begin. So we should probably talk about the trajectory that this character this uh pinocchio 964 uh takes which involves meeting this young woman who is named himiko and this girl is now this is this is one of those things that was unclear to me as i was watching the film but the promotional materials refer to her as an amnesiac as well uh which i did not pick up on when i watched the movie Yes, um, she's also potentially an android. Was to you. It is yeah. de- depending on the translation when she's when we first meet her, she's basically drawing maps of the city. And these maps um she right. she states that they're maps for other amnesiacs to also be able to follow um if they win and if they lose their memory, um they will still be able to navigate this labyrinth and city. And so by mm. saying that other so, amnesiac, she's referring so sorry, to herself as well. But in, okay, but in my translation, it didn't. She didn't specify other amnesiacs. All the translation that I had, all she said was "people like us." That was her quote. And I, to me, like that could have meant any number of things. I frankly thought that yeah. she was talking about like, uh, like homeless people. It did not occur to me that she was also an amnesiac, but I guess in retrospect, that probably is the case considering we get some sequences that seem to imply the fact that she perhaps used to work for the corporation that constructed this uh, memory-wiped sex robot. Yes. Um, I think that's implied, but it's not I'm willing to accept that as a reality. Yeah. There's a lot in this film you have to kind of take on faith of the translation. Uh, And 
as we mentioned, the dialogue is sparse. So you have to read in a little bit more than normal, which is difficult uh, because of the the way it's presented visually is very chaotic. So it's not a it's not always a like as we mentioned a user friendly or viewer friendly experience um, by any stretch of the means just in the general cinematography for one and then in quite a few of the plot points that just kind of slam you repeatedly um unexpectedly uh even though you as a viewer i think begin to realize some of what to expect probably about halfway through um this isn't a wholly grotesque film but it has its moments um that may be off-putting uh yeah i would say that the sound design is probably the key element that makes it gross you know like the sound the sounds in this movie i think that if you were to, to just listen to an audio track of this film it would probably like drive you insane within the first like half hour. Like everything in this movie is like moaning and screaming and squelching and <laughs> scratching. Like it, it is a really, really severe cacophony just from an audio perspective. And that that's actually something that I think like, honestly, that's probably my biggest takeaway from this. Like just really, really, impressively disgusting sound design (laughs) it is and it's something that helps uh classify what this film is in its in its very specific sub sub genre so it's ostensibly it's a cyberpunk film Um, however in the sub genre of basically japanese v cinema this is at the time it would have been classified as industrial noise punk rather than cyberpunk and that is a key component because a lot of this is industrialized it is urban um scenery uh they're not uh, there's just a lot of tunnels and industrial wasteland junkyards it's very machine heavy uh not not as much as something as a uh, tetsuo but it is mm-hmm. It's it's right there in that mix. Very and the, and the sound plays so much of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... This film is... It's light on talking, but very heavy on other... Other bodily noises. <laughs> it's it's, it's yes. a lot to take in. Yeah, it's just, just because there's no conversation going on doesn't mean that the film isn't, like, saying something or... Or deluging you with a sound. It just happens to be not um, speech. Yes. So the two, um, the two meet as we kind of alluded alluded to, and uh, Himiko is trying to take care of uh, Pinocchio and trying to get him to remember something of himself or even human speech at all. Because originally he's not really making any kind of noises. Uh, He can make, I guess, groaning ones. um, And he can eventually say his own name. Uh, That's a step in the right direction. And she kind of prods him uh, a little further. And there are a few 
plot points that crop up to where he he does regain some of his sense of self and that's a that's a heavy motif that the film traffics in is this um loss of identity and regaining of identity or shifting of identity because not everyone is who they seem at first or uh, has a have they have the capacity to change or to transform and that's not always a physical um, transformation yeah very much so and he he like you basically hinted at just now himiko uh his fellow amnesiac who at first takes him under her wing turns out to be not quite the the caretaker that she appears to be at first. She undergoes her own uh, sense of self-discovery, I guess you could say, her own her own journey. She does, and I, um, I read this as a, like a, it's not really a critique on it, but a, a potentially something different, uh, transmitted sexually because the, the film's dealing with that um uh, pinocchio 964 his malfunction is that he, he cannot maintain an erection um he however does have an intimate relation it's um brief or kind of alluded to uh, with himiko <laughs> and pretty much right after that they both begin their own respective changes um Pinocchio's is a more physical one where Himiko, uh, there's a, there's a bit of a physical, I guess, a rejection. Um, yeah. And yeah. then her <laughs> mental state shifts, um, completely from that caretaker mode into something very, very much different. Yeah. And that's really when this movie starts to fly off the rails with this interaction that you're describing. Um, cause they have, um, some, sexual contact as you alluded to which all we're really made privy to is the fact that they they touch tongues which is just really really <laughs> quite something um like they literally just they, they they stick out their tongues and they they touch and that's like the sexual contact that inspires this huge metamorphosis which involves pinocchio 964 um uh, which i don't I, we we should probably say that uh, the alternate title for this film is uh, "Screams of Blasphemy," presumably to uh, avoid the wrath of of the mouse um, for the the use of the name Pinocchio. Um, but anyways, uh, for Pinocchio nine six four, this transformation involves sort of turning into some sort of like yellow gelatinous goop. Um, and and blood. And I don't know. It's, Nico, <laughs> it's a lot going on with this transformation. Yeah, it's unclear. It's unclear exactly. And it, for her, for Himiko, uh, this encounter with him results in, uh, as you put it, a bodily rejection, which is a a nice way of saying that she pukes all over the place for a sustained amount of time it's in one of the three, more disgusting three to five sequences minutes. that i can recall <laughs> yeah so there's a sequence in this film uh and it's it's about uh, it's it's when i knew that i was in love with this film uh it's there's a sequence where himiko is 
in a, I believe it's a, a subway station. I think this is part of an underground is, shopping arcade and subway station. Is combined. it that? Yes. Okay. Fair enough. And she is stumbling around and puking profusely. Uh, increasingly profusely. At first it's just a little bit, but then gradually <laughs> it starts to become more and more voluminous. Uh, she starts to sort of like get it all over herself. She's rubbing in it. She's laying in it. And it goes on for a very long time. Probably like you said, probably I would say maybe a good five minutes of, of this. Yes. And, and it's, there's no, no. This, there's no, no dialogue. There's no explanation to any of this. It is just pure. It's pure, pure puke. Um, and that, that really sets the stage for the, uh, the mania that ensues for the rest of the film. That's like, that's the big turning point where it turns from something where I was thinking like, Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be like a cogent commentary on, you know, sexual autonomy. And then it becomes something more than that, which is just like a huge, like exploitative gross out fest. Uh, yes. The, and, and a really good one at that. The, a really, yeah, really wild one. The, the prime offender is probably the very overlong um, uh, vomiting scene. Uh, I, I did not. I watched it enough to see what was happening, and then it went on the the mild fast forward to just make sure I wasn't missing something important. However, the only important thing happening was she made a mound of vomit that was larger than her body, or at least the size of a person. There was far more vomitous than one could possibly contain. Um, it was impressive uh, for that feat, uh, yeah. I imagine, alone. Thankfully, that didn't yeah, work Yeah, I'd itself. like to know what that stuff was. I think it's rice. I think there's, like, a few close-ups where you can tell, like, it's it's obviously rice mixed in with some it's, other... Yeah, it's like a rice porridge <laughs> is what it, and, and yeah. something. Um, and later, she eats things that look way too close to what she vomited up, so that part was also not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that my interpretation was that she was just eating this this vomit yeah. substance. Yeah, I, I believe that was um, also the case uh, as she laughed maniacally and began to um, torture yeah. Pinocchio. Yeah, that's when the uh, the tables turn where she is no longer his caretaker. You know, in, in the first part of the film, she's sort of trying to reacclimate him into society and teach him how to say his own name and uh, they go and they try some, some, some free samples of, <laughs> of food all, all the, the food and such. <laughs> yeah, they're just kind of taking handfuls. But um, well, yeah, at this with, point, with, she... there was some exceptions. She was like, "Don't, don't take that," because I think that was when there was actual grocers um, present. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that too because this film. I, I don't know this for a fact, but uh, my strong suspicion is that the makers of this film did not have permission to film in it, very many of the places yes. that they filmed it at all. Um, as evidenced by the fact that in many sequences of the film, there are just people 
standing and gawking at what is happening, which is understandable because this film is full of people just like acting an absolute fool in public. Uh, So it was quite funny during those scenes to sort of look around and notice that there are people that very clearly have no idea what's going on and are not paid extras by any stretch. Yes. You know, like there's a sequence where Himiko is like just sort of powering through a store wearing a welding mask. And I could just imagine that they probably they probably were like, okay, we're going to get one shot at this because they're probably going to kick us out of the store immediately. Um, so that that part of it is is really enjoyable. Just like the obvious, like guerrilla style DIY filmmaking on display. Yeah, and I felt the same way when I was watching this. Um, one good thing to say about the sound effects, um, not one. Another good thing to say about the sound effects, uh, when Himiko is walking, she has a metallic, like, clang to her steps, just in, in general. Um, it's, it's in particular, to do what she's wearing, but it gives her a sort of robotic feel more, more toward her character than, like, no one else has that kind of tread. It's very distinctive. Hmm. I didn't notice that, but that's good. That's uh, is that sort of alluding to the fact that she is an android? I, I would say so. Yes, or she just has really cool shoes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair. Enough. I'll accept either. But yes, the the running around in the welding mask was um, a very good sequence, and she it, that's her like full descent into a mania that just keeps ramping up. She she has no upper limit to the things she's willing to just go ham on uh and it it's it's interesting to see and the, the the idea that the people um aren't expecting this or the general crowds may not be in on the filmmaking uh it works on two levels it works for a general society at large because that's just what's going to happen it's very um, homogenous society and anyone standing out it, even to uh, particularly to this degree because these are characters that are far more outlandish than anything you would see in real life um but they are um they're not only outliers but they're like anathema to society at at large uh they they will have to be one either ignored or two given wide wide birth because they do not fit in um they they are outside of society and that's that's part and parcel of these these sex worker androids with no memory like you you probably can't get more outside of society than that that image or that feeling and that's perfectly encapsulated with any interactions you see with them and the general public and even the the corporate goons we find um a little bit later on or we've seen a few times uh, that are actually tracking um, pinocchio are very eclectic they're they're again not general society or corporate members you would see in a, in a Japanese corporation. No, they are absolute weirdos too. There's, there's really nothing resembling a human being in this movie. No, it, even if the crowds are, um, they feel automaton in their nature that they're just blindly, ignoring what's going on 
And I think that that's part of the yeah. the rest of the critique that the film's leveling at corporate society. I mean, this is 1991. This is before the economic bubble burst. This was the height of um, the the Japanese economy and the salaryman lifestyle. Uh, even though this this takes place, I believe <laughs> yeah. in 2064, yeah, um, in in the setting of the film. Uh, it's showing that there's an existence outside of the corporate structure and it's, it's striving to be recognized or at least to just be allowed to exist. That's why um, Himiko is making these maps because there are, there are others. There are more of these mind wiped androids. And if they're going to be brushed aside, if they can't, function on their own or have a map of society to kind of uh, make their way. And I think that that's the larger mm-hmm. yeah, or the, the, the finer touches of the large brush that's being used. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well said. They're, they're both, um, she and Pinocchio are both very much under the thumb of corporate control or the, although their arcs, diverge sharply uh about about halfway through the film as Himiko sort of becomes another uh another oppressive force in Pinocchio's life you know she's literally yeah she's she's the most oppressive force in his life she's more so and more of a threat to him than the the corporate um uh, guard dogs that are sent after him yeah, and it's sort of impl- like we mentioned this already, but it is sort of implied that she was one of the people who uh, was responsible for building him. Like, there's, I think, like there's a scene, like one of her, one of the first like major freakout scenes involves her as a as a nurse type figure. Yes, at the corporation, yes. she's having like flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's hard. To, it's one of those things where it's like hard to discern whether or not it's whether it's a flashback or a hallucination. Yeah, but yeah, that does seem to be the implication that she is uh, herself. You know, in addition to being one of these products of of the uh, the corporation, you know, one of these beings whose humanity has been completely stripped. She is also a a force in that in that sort of that chain of dehumanization, I suppose. Yes. And it's, it's also, um, it's implied, but spoken to a little bit, um, by the, uh, he's basically the chairman of this corporation, um, that Pinocchio, uh, they're androids, but originally were, I guess, people. And then had things done to them to make them more of a, technically, I guess it's more of a cyborg, but, um, I think they're just using Android loosely uh, and, and he once had a human identity, um, but that had been wiped from him and he was instead um, basically become like a product, a meat product for this company. Right. Yeah. Like literally, like literally a number. And what do you think, what do you make of the fact that 
his his name within the structure is Pinocchio. Do you, do you have any you have any thoughts about that? I would so if it hadn't implied that he is it, was is it just like a, so it's reverse it just, I believe of sorry I, I'm just saying yeah go like, ahead I was just gonna say like do you think it's as simple as just like making the the direct one to one like he's not a you know a, a real boy as it were do you think it's as simple as that or do you think there's some other commentary happening here about like you know corporatism you know the fact that you know it's 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 obviously a reference to disney who even in the early 90s was a, about as monolithic as you could get in the public consciousness yeah I, I think it's partly that and partly a a reversal of the idea that had he once been human but is now rendered a puppet um but his corporate strings yeah. have been cut because now he was let go and he's searching for yeah. his own identity again to become an actualized person once more. Um, which arguably happens at the end of the film. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That, that's what I would... Yeah, I would, I would say that regarding, regarding the naming convention. Additionally, um, watching the interview with the director... Uh, the, the, of course the, the interviewer asked the question, like why, you know, what inspired you to make this film? Because that's a very important question. And the director mentioned that, um, originally he, uh, when he was working in, for a, a TV studio, um, they would record, uh, live bands. And in doing that, he was able to get close to quite a few of the um, band members that he would, uh, record videos for and one of these band members um the lead singer of a particular band was the inspiration for for the story and for the character of pinocchio himself it was a uh a, a band and the lead singer that would have like his music was unique and would have potentially uh, made waves in the music scene. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I believe it was um, cancer. He passed away uh, from uh, right uh, prior to making a, a film that the director was going to cast him as a lead in. And that idea of potential being cut short uh, is also part of what's going on with Pinocchio. Um, because I think he, he had that and then his mind, his memory was erased, which is the, the tantamount to his identity being, well, I mean, it's his identity being gone or the person dying. Um, and he's just kind of left in this limbo with no purpose. And this is a search for hmm. a purpose, but, um, Pinocchio is also not just a run of the mill slightly defunct um sex android uh he has been experimented on with some sort of greater purpose in mind um, potentially as a kind of bioweapon that's not made clear in the film but we can infer that due to traits that he begins to exhibit in his final metamorphosis yeah i th i think that's probably a safe assumption yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I 
would like to see some of the supplemental materials that is that are on the DVD because um, I, I was able to find very little information about the making of 964 Pinocchio online. It's the information, at least in the Western world, is very limited. Um, but I am I, I'm very interested in, in what the the genesis of this film was and uh, the details of the production because this is just uh, it's 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 a it's a special case it's 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 a, it's a pretty wild thing it's definitely a a very uh, a memorable and unique artifact for sure. Yeah, it is, and um, as I mentioned, the short film um, Caterpillar is on there, so I, I will watch that in the future. And then, of course, the 1996 uh, Rubber's Lover, which I have seen, um, is due uh, very distinctly for a look um, on the podcast, because that is... I can't say it's the superior film, uh, it's a little different, but it deals with some of the same themes. I think it's a little stronger in some points and it may be a little weaker in others, uh, primarily due to it being confined to almost one set. But it's the same, um, huh. roughly the same runtime, if I recall correctly. Um, but it deals uh, with psychokinesis which is a very, very interesting... They, okay. they play with that a little bit in this one. So Pinocchio exhibits yeah. some traits of that, but the, the Rubber's Lover in particular centers around the creation of a, a psychokinetic human weapon through uh, manipulations of specific sound frequencies. Uh, it's... It bears watching. It's um, it's a it's a easier to well, sort of easier to watch film. I, I, I <laughs> it's less of a gross out. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm definitely gonna watch it. Yeah. I, I I'm definitely gonna highly watch it recommend am, that, and we'll probably just return to uh, another episode with that in mind. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm interested in seeing more from Shojin, so I I, I will be checking that out. <laughs> So let's see what um, will bring this one a little closer to the end of the film. Uh, we have the the encounters, the semi-repeated encounters with the corporate stooges that have been sent to hunt down Pinocchio. They're um, they're all a little aberrant um, in their personalities. Uh, it's a little weird that the most effective of the it's a trio um is the least effective as a um commanding presence like he's very um reserved very mousy very not he, diligent in his work but not pressing and when your job is to track something down and ask people if they've seen someone, but being hedging and hesitant and doing even that, um, makes for interesting, uh, interesting character, uh, that is able to sort of be run roughshod over, uh, by Himiko. 
Yeah, so you're referring to um, one of the guys who physically goes out and looks for yes uh, the two of yes. them. Am There's I right? A... You're not. You're not referring to the uh, the boss. No, no, no. Um, that would be that would be the the chairman. Um, yeah. This is um, Narishima. Uh, I think it's Shimada. Narishima is the gentleman that is trying to adopt a child. Oh God, that that was a very odd uh, detour. Wasn't I did, it? I, it plays. There's, there's a part of the movie yes, where one of the people goes out. Yeah, there's, so there's a part of the movie, very strange, where uh, the people who have been sent out to retrieve Pinocchio and Himiku go out and one of them just decides seemingly at random just to abduct a child <laughs> and does it's very strange and it's never it is never elaborated or touched upon again but i think we can no, probably read and... into it as just being like um just another one of the you know it's just an, another so human it, life that has it, been yes robbed. and what it's touching but on this, is this, um this corporation yeah narishima is is impotent so he's yeah. the other side of uh pinocchio the human component with that same issue and he says that his wife uh is said it was okay for them to adopt he's like it's okay to us for us to adopt i'm going to adopt a child i've this is the child right here. So um, before that dialogue happens, which is in the middle of him chasing down this very, like an elementary school girl, um, it's very difficult to read what it's intended. I mean, that's not a good intention either, but it comes off looking differently. And then, then he talks about it and that's like, well, I can't, I cannot agree with that, but that's a better than the alternative. Um you just don't. You never want to see a, a sweaty man running after a child. It's it's not good. Um, and if they're kidnapped, whatever. It's it's a it's a bad scene, regardless of the circumstances. Um, but it's very confusing until I think you realize what they're because this is a takedown of society, um, and the links that people will go to uh, further society and further themselves which is what this is about it's about um self-satisfaction and greed uh in part and that's that's just another scathing uh, critique on it i i would that's how i read it anyway i mean that that uh that explanation uh flew completely over my head i don't even remember that being said probably because that part of the film is just so chaotic. There's just so much happening. It's very short. Uh, it's very it probably, brutal. It just, and it just, yeah. It, yeah. It just didn't even register. Um, but yeah. So yeah, that happens. So yeah. And they're, they're out trying to retrieve, uh, Pinocchio and Himiku, or sorry, Himiko. And, uh, they're carrying these weapons that I thought were, <laughs> were pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if these were props that they built themselves or if they were things that were found or, or what are they, but they're essentially like these huge gas cannons, right? Yeah. I thought that they built these props. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, they're just like these enormous gas guns that, uh, are supposed to kill them. I forget. It's like. I forget if they're like if their mission is to kill or retrieve 
Pinocchio. I think they're, the, they they want to kill. They him, were right? supposed to retrieve him originally, um, and then kill. They, and they're they supposed to kill, to kill Himiko him. because they found that right he, someone's they with him. Yeah, there's no use for her. Uh, so they're yeah. given these like uh, prototype gas weapons that can kill anything in one shot but they're warned specifically there's only seven shots and only to use one because you only need one and it's wasting ammunition because it's a precious commodity yeah and then it just it just well it's continuing the ramp up into what is going on um uh, prior, slightly prior to this, uh, we had uh, the the important scene of um, Himiko, her full transformation um, into an antagonistic force, uh, is is where she's taken Pinocchio to a junkyard and chained him. She's manacled his arms and legs, uh, chained his hands to his neck, and then uh, his legs to a big metal pyramid it's like a big weight yeah it's not not entirely clear it's literally just a giant pyramid that we're meant to understand is to keep him like yeah slow him down um and then she drags him to the city uh to go torture him some more because she ends up pouring like acid on him i don't know what it was um something on him she pours stuff on him. yeah i think so because it's like it has sort of a burning yeah, like the way that the 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 sound is designed, it, it makes it seem like it's burning his flesh as she pours it on him. Yeah, but but it does get rid of these strange like corruptive. She uh, powdery dry stuff on his skin that he was transforming yeah. into it, it. It wipes most of that off of him. Yeah. So I don't know if that was the the purpose of it or if she was torturing i think it's maybe a little bit of both um because the film doesn't explain exactly yeah and is this the point where his skin is. just turns completely white it it begins to do that once he's been chained up uh and he gets blasted by that gas right right okay. because it was supposed to kill him and it just like calcified his skin which which has the the the, the two yeah, the two men freaking out a, because they're like he's not human didn't kill him <laughs> yeah it did not it did not but he Pinocchio uh, my guy has quite a distinct look throughout the back half of this movie his skin is just painted completely white and he's just like bleeding from his mouth uh, and like the blood is just sort of smeared all over his face and it makes him look really terrifying uh it's yeah it's sort of a it's captain spaulding look, look. He, he starts the movie <laughs> looking more or less yeah he looks more or less like a regular human to start this movie albeit with a very strange unicorn-esque <laughs> haircut maybe my favorite haircut that i've um, seen in a long time yeah it's pretty wild i wonder if I wonder if that was inspired by any of the uh, the J punks. Oh, that um, knew. it could one, have been like a. Always, a, a this would have been an early um, Visual K, um, so like X Japan and that, that kind of scene. Um, yeah, 
Could have been. I mean, it, it's, it's very speculation. It's very punk. It's a very punk look. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, the the, but, uh, yeah, the kidnapping or retrieval attempt does not go well. And although Himiko had brought the men to do the work, um, she gets caught up in it once she realizes they're trying to kill her. So she takes out one of the men um, in a a very furious, amped up, like, scratch someone's face off kind of way and take their gas mask and then use the gas gun on them and then you go to watch someone melt and see how effective this is when it's something that's not a um, hyper-powered up uh, android. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the point where Himiko essentially just, her, her interests are just, are more or less completely aligned with that of the corporation. Yes, as provided they're not trying to kill her. Yeah. Because she does, she just saves the meek yeah, it's guy. Just, it's Pinocchio <laughs> versus, it's Pinocchio versus the world by the end. Mm-hmm. And we get a, we get treated yeah. to more scenes with the chairman who's, he's pretty, um, uh, Probably because I've just come off of watching a few Nicolas Cage movies. This, um, the chairman is a very scene chewy. Uh, every time he's on the screen, he, he oh, yeah. just takes the cake <laughs> or the weird drool cherries, um, as the case, I guess, maybe. I think they were cherries. I don't know. Um, but they're definitely in a bowl of yeah, drool. Yeah, I, th- I think they are. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to parse. I don't. I don't yeah, know. we won't dwe- we won't dwell on it for the the listener no. at home. But uh, suffice to say that he has a giant bowl full of cherries floating in drool on his on his desk, and uh, that's his. From what we can tell, that's his uh, his his primary sustenance. Um, but yeah, you're right. He is really cranking it up to eleven, uh, as is everybody really in this film. Uh, this isn't. Uh, this is not a work of subtlety, really, on on any level. No. And by the end of it, pretty much everybody is like screaming, pretty much. And I would say the actress who plays Himiko is also really cranking it up a lot of times, especially when they get the camera, like in that really like intense close up wide angle on her face, yeah. you know, when she's got like the, the huge d- demonic grin in a few places. Like it's she, really, it's really well done. It's a very movie. good expression. Like yeah. I was actually trying to figure out how she was doing that because it, it seemed distorted, but uh, it's a combination of I think, the camera angle. And then she just really can make one good face, <laughs> like one specific horrifying Yeah. Face. At first I thought that she was in some sort of makeup or something, but it really is just, uh, it really is just that <laughs> expressive acting and it does work. And like all of these choices that we're talking about, like all of these really outsized outlandish choices, I think they all really, I think they all really work. I mean, they, they all serve to make this film every bit as creepy and insane as it inspires to be. Mm. I don't think anything's taking away from it. It's all additive experiences aside from the choice to do a five minute long vomit scene. That was maybe a bit much. That was a, a bridge too far. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have I have no choice but to stand. 
the five minute vomit scene. <laughs> well, it's definitely um, it's a choice. It's a choice that was made and uh, is a notorious oh, yeah. um, scene in, in, in the among those who That's, have uh, decided to watch. It's one this of the film. great. It's one of the great. Uh, it's one of the great. You're in or you're out yeah. scenes of cinema. I would say. Yeah. It's like if you can if you can make it through the puke scene, you're probably going to be pretty well prepared to to cope with whatever comes next. And if not, then you're probably just going to want to turn it turn it off. That's uh, yeah. probably in your best interest. But you'd be missing out on the final transformations that go on and the very very good. Uh, let's watch Pinocchio run hellmell through the streets making a beeline um for this corporation tower this is, it's very good this is my favorite stuff this is my favorite stuff in the movie where um everybody like all the other like um like peripheral characters are just sort of holed up at the corporate hq and pinocchio is just making a beeline at superhuman speed, dragging his big pyramid weight with a chain behind him. And the camera work here and the editing is just really, really top notch. Like it is just so like, it is just so unbelievably kinetic Mm -hmm. and intense and funny. Like it's just, uh, it's a really like virtuoso piece of independent filmmaking in my opinion yeah they they do a stellar job with it um it's it's entertaining and terrifying in alternate turns um and i i very much enjoyed them taking the time to have him do a cartoon uh turn on a like stop on a dime in a uh intersection spinning and then using like the 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 force of the turn, the centripetal force of the weight to spin him and it's dragging and sparking his feet are sparking. <laughs> and then he just cuts down like the next turn. It's like a, a, a 90 degree angle. It's yeah. very good. Um, and he's just screaming the whole time. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot going on, <laughs> but um, it's probably my favorite yeah. part of the movie. Yeah. Same. Aside from his like, very, very, yeah, that very arrival a um, with the the crew that decides to, like, they know he's coming for them. So they go out of their fortification and stand in front of, like, a chain link fence out in the field. <laughs> it's a weird decision to make if yeah. you know something's coming to kill you or come at you for some reason. Because he's just screaming, help me, the entire time. He just wants someone to help him because he's in so much pain. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming, and and they know it. And in fact, there's there's an alarm that goes off when he shows up outside <laughs> yes. of the building. It's it's a a very cheesy effect as well. Just like there's a red glowing alarm outside the window. It's it's definitely the most um, pro- it's probably the most intensive special effect in the film. For being yeah. honest, <laughs> but he he shows up. The um, Himiko's just like glaring and snarling at him and the chairman is trying to use his secretary and the, like the remaining uh goon to shield himself but they're trying to also back up so it's it's uh it's a kind of a it's a, co- a comedic scene even though everything else has been generally horrifyingly serious 
to, to, to a certain point. I mean, there's there's a lot of weird um, slapstick stuff, particularly in, in when the chairman's involved. He's he's just kind of hamming it up the entire time. It's also really hard to figure out why he's yeah, like he's, in charge of anything. He's <laughs> nobody in this corporation is very good, and I think that's another sort of indictment um, on on these corporations that they're they're not they're not only monolithic and faceless kind of conglomerates, but the people in charge um, may not be not may not know what they're doing. And I think a lot of this is it's not any more yeah, or not any less relevant um in these in these times as it would have been back then. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely very pointed that the head of this corporation is the biggest stooge in the film, despite uh referring to himself as a genius at one point. Um and I think that he he meets a and he meets an appropriately grisly end at the climax of this film, which uh, I, just as a, uh, a cursory YouTube search for 964 Pinocchio, the entirety of the, the finale of this film has been uploaded by somebody under the title of The Greatest Finale in Cinematic History. <laughs> I think and, you could probably uh, argue, argue folks, that point, but it is something. <laughs> Look, I mean, some might say, you know, Rosebud, Citizen Kane, uh, you know. But Others might say, personally, uh, I think it's... Exploding chairman. Uh, I think it's a guy... Yeah, it's, it's a guy getting uh, his chest all the way punched through, uh, and then a woman uh, tearing off her face to reveal a big, like, blob head. Uh, I don't I don't know how else to describe it. Like, she... <laughs> so, yeah, Himiko, she... She grows a head that sort of looks like... Um, what's the film? The, the old silent film, A Trip to the Moon? Mm. It sort of looks like what the moon looks like in that film. It's, yeah. It sort of... It looks like a... Uh, just a big, gooey face uh, made out of some sort of disgusting gray matter. And I don't, I, it's, it's, it's certainly something. Uh, is it the greatest finale in cinematic history? Uh, who can be the judge? But uh, all, all I know is that by this time in the film, I was just kind of, I was just kind of ready for whatever, for whatever was going to be thrown at me. Like literally nothing that could have happened in nine six four Pinocchio at this point would have been a shock to me. I would, you could have shown me literally anything, and I would have just been like, okay, that 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 seems appropriate. Yes, and it's still, I think it still manages to grant the audience another like, what just happened. Like I'm ready for anything, but this still yeah. was effective. Um, so, what it kind of boils down to is uh, Himiko is is yelling at um, Pinocchio um, to 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 take off his his mask, like reveal his true self. Um, he's he's getting his memory back. He should just be himself now. She 
pulls off her facade and it's that strange blobbish horrifying face uh pinocchio rips it off like he just takes off her head and puts it on his own like it's a helmet uh, his hands had already sort of metamorphized, metamorphized, whatever. They changed into like kind of brick hand, like Lego. Lego yes. He kind of looks like a Lego man. If a Lego man were horrifying or just huge. Um, yeah. And when his, when he's taken her head, um, this is, I'm reading into this. This is a symbol. This is a symbolism of them truly joining because, uh, she's still there. Um, that's her true essence. Um, they've combined in a way that they were not able to fully, um, form a union otherwise. Uh, and the film sort of ends on them saying that they've become one and their true self which is horribly ambiguous this doesn't give a whole lot of meaning <laughs> to this uh other than two two horrible halves make one horrible whole i <laughs> i don't know i'm sure there's something else that was intended by that but i do not know what that could have been um if you have any any way to like further enlighten us on that subject that would be great how uh, did you read this very you know Dave, i wish i could you know to be honest there yeah the, you're right there is there is the fact that they sort of merge and the last words that are spoken by by him and her are like uh it's it's clearly both of their voices mixed together and they're talking about how they are now as one but frankly i was more distracted by the very last shot of the sequence and indeed the very last shot of the film which is them with the blob head standing beneath the eiffel tower at night oh yes i forgot that it just completely (laughs) shifted and um <laughs> while you say Eiffel Tower, I'm I would I'd have to look at it again, but it's probably the Tokyo Tower. Which would make more sense. But if okay, there but if there's no fine. viewing platform then it's Eiffel I'll take Tower. That. I'll I'd, ex- have to, I'd have to watch it again. I'll I'll ex- I'll accept my ignorance on that, because I, I I'm not familiar with the Tokyo Tower. It looks the uh, same so except what, for that's its probably orange. what it is. So but um yeah. yeah, so it's it's regardless it's not where they were just moments ago. Yeah. So apparently uh, some sort of time shift is happening. Uh, they were in a field in the middle of the day before this, but the film ends with this low shot of the, what is probably more likely than not the Tokyo tower. Or towering. Or, or they've gone to France. I don't know. <laughs> Either way. It's, yeah, it's a, yeah. I'm a looking weird... at it now. Okay, so um, yeah. Let me look it up. See if I can. 
get a visual on yeah it. i mean there's a large observation deck at the top of tokyo uh, tower so if you don't see that then it's eiffel tower uh, i can't tell see the thing is like the angle is so mm. low uh that you can't really tell well anyways uh it's either the tokyo tower or they i'm i sincerely doubt that they flew to france to get one shot of the Eiffel Tower, so it, it may just be a superimposed shot. I think that I think it's a like a, a um, green screen shot, but it's it's something. Yeah, um, but regardless, that is how this this wonderful film ends. You'd and, think that'd be the case, uh, but there's actually a mid there's a mid credit scene of of uh, Himiko oh. and Pinocchio. Um, hanging out in a nightclub, watching a band. Wow, wow! I gotta go back and look at this because I totally—I I never expected there to be a mid-credits <laughs> sequence in this. Yeah, and it was super hard Silly to me. figure out if it's just the actors or if they were trying to show like that's them together, finally able to like just appreciate life. And not go on a murderous rampage. I, I don't know. I can't answer that. They went to either France or to the heart of Tokyo. Well, in any case, so concludes a very, very special film. It's yeah. I honestly, honestly, I, I, I was enthralled by this movie. I gotta say, I was. I was thoroughly engaged throughout. I don't know. I don't know how you felt about it, but I thought it was. Uh, I th- I thought it was like a really really entertaining and distinctive film. It it was. It makes me really want to watch um, the rest of the films uh, in the director's filmography, and I also have this desire to delve directly back into um, Tetsuo. Uh, and the related films. I, I, I really enjoy this very specific genre because it's unlike its Western um, counterparts. We, we have wonderful uh, Blade Runner, uh, Johnny Mnemonic, um, think things of that ilk, eventually The Matrix kind of, um, but these do not feel like that. They're informed kind of by some of the similar things, but they just took this and ran with it in a very specific sensibility. Um, one that I, I don't, I would love to see more of this. And I guess the closest we get uh, would be something like a razor head or, or um, go back a little yeah. earlier uh, and a video drone would feel more like this because of the general like aesthetic and some of the body horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of, um, it's, it, uh, it has, it has some of the trappings of science fiction, but basically a total rejection of the more highfalutin high tech aspects of it yeah. and that's kind of what i appreciate about it it's sort of a low down and dirty futurism yeah it's definitely not the high-tech low life feeling of, of general cyberpunk um much of which isn't very punk but it's very no. cyber um, this is definitely yeah. anti-establishment 
and kind of anti-society. There's a lot going on yes. with thematically with what these kind of films do. And um, I think should should time afford us to also watch and uh, take a look at Rubber's Lover, uh, we will be able to expand a little bit upon um, what this director's uh, views are. Because I think that as a companion piece, uh, if I recall correctly, it works very well in sort of expounding on some of these themes. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to watching it for sure. Uh, well, I think we've kind of wrapped this up as much as we're going to be able to. Uh, there's just not a lot. I like to look at some outside source material. Um, there's there's just not that. It doesn't really exist. There may be some reviews on this that dig into it a little more or more informed, but I don't know where those are at. Um, <laughs> if anyone listening. Um, comes across those uh, send them my way and I will I will address them in the next episode uh, that's related to this uh, otherwise that will wrap us up for this particular episode uh, Nick it was a pleasure to have you on the show um, I, I, I look forward to exploring a little bit more of these uh, again with you as a guest uh, and if you would like to, uh, remind folks, or I guess inform folks of where they may be able to contact you online, um, that would be great. Yeah. So I'm pretty much just on Twitter, uh, where you can find me at strenuous orb. Excellent. Well, everyone give him a follow uh, if you're not already, because I think primarily most of the listeners are ones that are familiar with most of my twitter feed but uh yeah that's its own that's its own side thing so that wraps us up for today uh as 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 every time the all the music for the show was composed and provided by um, jake lionheart so give him a follow if you aren't already uh his Bandcamp link is in the show notes uh he's as far as I know, still available for a commission. He does good work, and I will send you off with the closing tunes from Jake Leinhardt. Bye, folks. <laughs>